Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey everyone, this is Mike Wolf. Welcome to the Smart Home Show. Today's guest is Richard Gunther, who's the host of the Home On podcast from the Digital Media Zone. Also, you can find it at technology.fm. As you learn from this conversation, we actually did this podcast before last week, but we had, I had problems with my audio, really more just kind of user error than anything. And so Richard and I decided to recreate this podcast or at least re-record it uh, and freshen up the topics. And so that lost episode will never be heard, thankfully for you guys and for myself. As always, if you want to listen to more smart home shows, you know where to go. Go to technology.fm. Before we start this, I have a quick announcement. If you are a company making new products in the smart home, particularly focused on the kitchen, or you're thinking about it, as you may or may not know, we're having a smart kitchen summit. I've created my own event, and I've gotten two of the best hardware accelerators in Silicon Valley to participate in a startup pitch-off, we're calling it startup cook-off. If you want to pitch to these guys and have them tell you and give you feedback, uh, this is your opportunity. The deadline is September 20th. Go to SmartKitchenSummit.com. Look for the startup cook-off and apply. Also, if you just want to come to the Smart Kitchen Summit, I have a special discount for listeners just for you guys. Just go to SmartKitchenSummit.com. If you buy tickets, put in the offer code or the comp code podcast, and you can get a discount of 15% off the regular price. And now here's my conversation with Richard Gunther of Home On. Hey, well, I'm happy to have Richard Gunther from the Home On podcast as a guest. This is take two. I think I maybe mentioned uh, on the last podcast you're going to be on. We tried this last week in the the non, non-professional that I am. I didn't have the right mic. You did. So, uh, <laughs> so Richard was nice enough to come back. Thanks, Richard. I'm very glad to be here. I always enjoy talking to you. And you've had a very busy week. You were on Home Tech at the beginning of the week. You've had, this is your second show this week. You were on DTNS this week. Big, busy week. Yeah, I'm talking a lot. I'm talking too much. People are going <laughs> to get sick of me. So, Well, we wanted to have a podcast. I think the genesis of the whole uh, reason for you coming on is we, we thought, well, let's have a conversation about HomeKit and debate whether or not it's a mess whether or not this is part of Apple's master plan to to roll this out slowly and surely and safely, and uh, you know I'm kind of of two minds about it. Uh, you know I've complained about it uh, in my writing and on the podcast before about you know what a mess it is, but at the same time I, I see the perspective of, of uh, you know why Apple is going slow and steady to win the race. Um, I think part of it is they're just making sure this thing is rock solid from a security perspective. Yeah, and you had a really good post about that. I think that that's a very smart move on their part. But I almost wish that they had, to achieve that goal, just ultimately decided to hold back because I agree with both of your first two statements. I think it is a mess, and I think that the approach to be slow and steady is is very intentional. Apple does very little haphazardly. You know, they they approach things very strategically. And I think this was an intentional soft launch, and they probably learned quite a bit in this initial launch. You wrote a piece 
I think it's been months ago now, where you posited the question, what's going to happen if HomeKit launches and it's not good? And guess what? Right now, it's not good. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a shame because I think that it has a lot of potential. And I also think that it being not good could further sully the market a little bit because right now I think we're seeing a whole lot of pushback from the bad things that are happening in the market. You know, the wink stuff that you already talked about in the last episode, home has been kind of a mess. People expected big things from nest and nothing. Uh, it, it just, it's been, it's been a, a weird time right now. And I don't want this to be one more thing that is going wrong and maybe discourages consumers from getting into this stuff. Well, I think part of the problem is so many people are putting all their hopes in the, in the Apple HomeKit basket. Um, there are startups who have only a limited amount of money that we're saying, hey, this is going to be the savior that really kind of pushes us and gets us out there riding on the coattails of Apple as they launch a new initiative. And, you know, for all the, the various reasons we can discuss about, you know, why it's going slow, you know, A, the security uh, B, this is probably more complicated than rolling out uh, made for made for Iowa the MFI program, which is really a kind of a a third party accessory program, which is much simpler than something that involves a bunch of connected network uh, third party devices. Um, right. Th- the fallout of it is, I think, if you're a company that uh, has built a product and, and and it's taking longer to get out to market, you're burning cash this whole time. I mean, a good the use case or the I guess the case study number one that we talked about before. And, you know, Stacy's written an article about is Ecobee. So Ecobee had, you know, their Ecobee 3 that they, I think, put out in the in fall of last year. And it was, you know, got lots of accolades for being sexy. It looks as good as Nest. And now they have to roll out the Ecobee 3 with HomeKit. And so that automatically makes everyone who six within the last six months bought the first Ecobee 3 upset. And I think, uh, you know, you I think you made a good point on our previous conversation that never got put out. And just to remind you, you had a good point that, you know, they've done a good – Ecobee's done a good job at kind of handling the situation as best they can. But it still, I think, presents a lot of difficulty for a company like that. Absolutely, because they ended up kind of uh, you know swallowing some of the expense of their product. They reduced the price of the previous Ecobee 3, the one that's not HomeKit compatible. And they even gave – and I think this is a great move. They gave a discount to people who had bought that so that they could buy the Ecobee Compat or the HomeKit compatible version of that, and get it at a discount. So, really nice way of handling things for consumers, but not every company can afford to do that. And I think that we're gonna. I think we're gonna have a lot of interesting things to watch in the coming months. You know, iOS nine comes out soon. There are going to be significant improvements to HomeKit in iOS 9. It's going to be supporting additional devices that aren't currently supported. For example, you can't trigger activities in HomeKit right now using sensors. That that capability just doesn't exist. So this isn't really home automation that we can get yet. It's more like home control. And the automation is going to come with sensors and other capabilities like that. So I I think it'll get better, but 
I, I'm just, you know, I'm frustrated and disappointed. I've tested a lot of these devices. Almost all of them are buggy. Most of the companies are having plenty of support challenges. Every support line that I've called has mostly t- has fallen back on the that's an Apple issue and we can't really help you with that uh, situation or we don't know enough about that to be able to troubleshoot it. And that's an unfortunate position for any company to be in. So I think we need to figure that out too. They can't be pointing people to Apple and Apple isn't going to be supporting third-party devices. That's a great point on on how iOS 9 could really maybe change things, how there's going to be a lot of extra features and functionality built into iOS 9 that makes HomeKit maybe more robust and maybe true automation. Another thing to keep on the radar is the September announcement will be rolling out new devices, including, I think, fingers crossed, a new Apple TV. And what that means for HomeKit will be really interesting. If that's better optimized, if that's developed out of the out of the box to be essentially a, a smart home hub, if you will, uh, that'll be interesting and an important thing. I think it will be. At the same time, they're also saying how with iOS 9, some of that control of the devices is going to happen through the cloud. I don't entirely have my head wrapped around that yet. I think that that suggests that everything's getting directly addressed from the internet in your network and that it's all happening through iCloud. I want to see what they're talking about there because I don't know how that works for everything. For example, these Eve sensors that are available from Elgato, I'm pretty sure they connect through Bluetooth, not through a Wi-Fi connection. So how are they going to be controlled? I think you're going to need the hub for things like those. Yeah, and I think a lot of smart home companies have realized that if you're entirely 100% reliant on cloud for your rules engine, for your internet connectivity, that's a potential recipe for failure. Um, I think that you do need something. I think the idea of the headless smart home without any sort of hub device that uh, is relying entirely on internet con- connectivity, well, we all know that internet connectivity goes down. So I would think that Apple... Um, while they may be building that into iOS 9, and that's a nice feature, I think they really have to think about what d- does it mean to have complete local control. Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting about HomeKit is how HomeKit affords an opportunity for third-party developers to kind of create their own interfaces to your home. What Apple provides is a framework and a database and each developer gets an opportunity to kind of create their own experience around that. And so far, we have five products out there, basically. You know, five uh, sets of products that each have their own app. And you can see from that how different vendors might approach things differently. On one hand, you have Insteon, where their app is intended to be the master controller of all HomeKit devices, the Insteon Plus app. And it's an interesting solution. It's actually a pretty good interface, but they're also the most troubled product right now. They actually have stopped shipping their product because they have so many issues with it. Whereas on the other end, you have products like Ecobee and uh, Lutron, where their integration with HomeKit is really lightweight. And all they're really doing is exposing their products to the other applications and not bringing in other HomeKit product control into their own applications. So I'm really curious to see what we end up with here. And what I'm hoping, Mike, you know, we heard these rumors that Apple may actually come out 
with their own HomeKit app, their own home control app of a sorts. I'd love to see them put a reference app out there and then see some third-party developers who aren't in it for the hardware game but really understand user experience come up with a great app to control it all. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the exciting parts for me about HomeKit uh, was the idea of possibly um, Apple creating a home app itself, but also people who aren't creating hardware, just creating like a, a home automation super app, if you will. Um, because yep. by and large, every app today is written for a specific piece of hardware. There are a few apps out there that are, you know, you can find in the App Store and, and or Google Play that are home automation apps that are supposedly connecting into a bunch of third-party devices. But I think there's a real opportunity here for app developers to create that uh, that super app that connects all the different devices writing on top of HomeKit. Absolutely. You know, one more thing I think is interesting is I've had a conversation with a few startups thinking about HomeKit that they haven't integrated yet. And one of the one of the ideas that I've heard some of these guys is, you know, possibly doing this through USB. So you look at Ecobee, for example, um, they they had to go and integrate hardware and, you know, they had a, they basically almost made obsolete their earlier Ecobee 3. What if you just had a, an upgradable piece of uh, equipment out there that you can upgrade in the field through an add-on? I'm wondering if Apple would allow a company to basically add functionality through either a USB add-on port, USB add-on device or something like that. That'd be really interesting. I, I have a feeling that they might not, but I think that would be an interesting approach for potential startups. I think it'd be interesting too. And certainly vendors have done that in terms of having different versions of their devices, like a Zigbee or a non-Zigbee version or a Wi-Fi or a non-Wi-Fi version where you're really just connecting a chip th- through uh, a set of ports that are, there and waiting for that add-on. That would be great if they could do it. Well, let's move on. I don't want to make this the entire Apple HomeKit show, but a nice segue is, you know, we were talking a lot about why Apple is going slow with security. And security, I think, is going to be an ever bigger issue in the smart home. And as you may or may not know, last week in Vegas, they had the Black Hat Conference where every year uh, hackers get together and show off their latest uh, hacks and and write papers and, and demo them. And one of them was around... Uh, one of the papers was about a guy who'd found a way to hack and get into Zigbee. And so uh, there was another one that where a guy had actually hacked Wi-Fi, a Wi-Fi rifle. I don't know why you'd have a, a rifle with Wi-Fi. but <laughs> <laughs> That just seems like a very yeah, bad that, idea. That just, a network-connected rifle just sounds like a terrible idea. And there was another did, one. I did think, anyone not see Terminator? I mean, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's not connect these weapons, please. Let's fuse it with the latest AI and see what happens. But... um. Yeah, I think I think you know security is going to become more and more important. So Apple's thinking forward on that, and I think the I, IoT and smart home in particular is becoming an ever bigger potential target for hackers. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. You know, I wanted to read the Zigbee paper because, I, as I understand it, their main argument is that most vendors who are implementing Zigbee as part of the secure key are just using a generic default value. It's kind of similar to how most Bluetooth products that you buy, you read the manual and it tells you, enter secret code 0000. And we all know that that's crap. There's no security there. Yeah, I mean, it is, I think, a part in part a, a lazy implementation issue where folks are using the default uh, security key. But like you said, a lot of companies cut corners in order to get to market quickly. And I think that happens. Um, so I think, 
uh, yeah, I think you bring up a great example. We've all had the router where, you know, it's the default admin password and, and <laughs> folks don't change that. Um, you probably shouldn't do that nowadays because people just know those things are out there. I think this is something that companies are going to have to think long and hard about. I think that like if you're like a, a Comcast uh, with your Xfinity Home or these other guys are probably thinking that way because I think by default they're, they are conservative companies. But I, I think that some of these startups maybe aren't thinking in terms of you know making sure that that extra step is taken to make things are secure. Yeah, and that's a really critical part, especially when a part of many of these smart homes is home security. You don't want your home security system to be hackable. And I think that that's, uh, that's something that needs to be taken very seriously. Now, at the same time, I might just remind people that a whole lot of noise and panic and maybe even FUD can also come out of these types of conferences because the press will glom onto this stuff and perhaps blow it out of proportion, you know, just perhaps blow it out of proportion. <laughs> and, and I think we have to be realistic about what is and isn't a threat that we need to worry about. You know, I just had an episode where I spoke with someone about smart locks. and I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. And he, he has the whole perspective. And, and I think I subscribe to this, that, you know, locks keep honest people out. And so is it really all that terrible that there's some crazy obscure hack that you need to be within a certain distance and some brilliant hacker to be able to execute? Or should we be focusing on more holistic security concerns? Like, I don't know, maybe good password enforcement or uh, double, meth- you know, secondary authentication methods for accessing your smart home stuff. Yeah. I've always maintained that if you're going to have someone break into your house, the likelihood of them hacking your smart lock is much lower than them actually breaking a window or going through the back door that is unlocked. Right. Right. So I don't know if I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I remember I was a very early adopter of home plug. I think it was probably 2004, 2003, 2004, I started using HomePlug. And for those of you who don't know, it's it's networking over PowerLine. I'm still a big proponent of it. I use it in my house today because it's I think it's better than Wi-Fi for propagating signals. But the first HomeKit gear I got, or first, first, home, first HomePlug gear I got was Netgears. And Netgear has long remedied this situation. But I put it on the network, and I was able to see my neighbors. Someone else in my neighborhood surprisingly had a HomePlug network. And I was able to actually see his computer and I was able to actually see his hard drive. I didn't actually I, – I, I was so curious. I go, wow, what is this other computer on my network neighborhood in Windows? Oh, it's someone else's. Oh, by the way, if I wanted to see his C drive, I can't. I didn't go exploring it. But that's just petrifying if you think about it. Right, right. I don't think it was that bad anymore. But that was that was an early implementation of a connected home networking technology. Uh, I think we can learn from that type of thing. <laughs> For sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, – Smartlocks, as we mentioned it earlier, um, one a little piece of news that I uh, I think I was the only one to write about because not a lot of people write about uh, Dana Lock, but they're an interesting company to me because they were uh, one of the the first Bluetooth connected smartlocks out there. You know, all the press seems to go to August, which is a, you know uh, you know they're a great company, but they're based out of Silicon Valley, and a lot of people know them because of that. But Dana Lock is a company based out of Europe, and they they were doing a Bluetooth smartlock, started shipping it last year, and what was interesting to me is they had a dual Bluetooth slash Z-Wave smart lock. They were the only one on the market. Well, they're upgrading all their smart locks and they're coming out this fall. And they're adding a smart lock with Bluetooth and Zigbee, which I think is interesting. 
And I had someone write on my uh, my blog because I'd written about it, and they said, I don't see the use case. Why would you want Z-Wave or Zigbee on a smart lock? And what I responded to them is, you know, you you use those technologies if you're within the context of a managed smart home, most likely. If you have your smart home from uh, Comcast or ADT or Vivint, there's uh, a good chance you're on Z-Wave, you're on Zigbee. And so that's why you would want that type of technology. And that's why DanaLock wanted to have a smart lock so they can possibly get distribution through those platforms. Right. And I think, you know, you have to think about what are the use cases there. The use cases are maybe if you unlock your doors, then you're going to set off a series of events like turn on a nearby light or something like that. Or maybe you just want the ability to check the status of that lock. And if you're not physically nearby it, then the Bluetooth connection isn't going to do you any good. So I think the idea of having access to that through a network is really good. You know, I, I like that. And even if for n- nothing but status, I think it can be very useful. You make a great point, And one I didn't even make is that it sets off and connects into automation routines. So I actually have Vivint right now that I'm, I've been playing with at my house. Uh, I had a Vivint system installed. I have a quick set Z-Wave lock, and I can set it up so when my when I unlock my Z-Wave lock, then that shuts off security. It, and if I wanted to set off routines like lighting going off, I could do that. So that that makes a whole lot of sense, and that's another good use case for a networked connected Z-Wave or Zigbee lock. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about whether or not the DIY smart home bubble is burst. You know, this is not necessarily a, a new theme. I think for the past month or so, there's been a wave of articles written, I think, partly because uh, there's been some companies struggling, I think. you know, so Some of the companies at retail uh, haven't seen a, a ton of sales. But also there was a report put out by a company called Argus Insights basically saying that because uh, they drew a correlation between the decline in mentions on social media, blog posts, et cetera, of DIY smart home, they correlated the, this with a decline in interest in DIY smart home among consumers. Now, I don't know if the methodology of, of correlating it with social media mentions is necessarily one I would put 100% uh, confidence in, but I do think that there's certainly been uh, what I would call possibly a decline in confidence in the market because I think th- there's been some struggles among some companies. You know, Wink is a good example. Uh, Lowe's Iris is probably another good one of DIY smart home hub centric platforms. I think where we've seen a lot of successes in the hero products like smart locks or, or lighting, single point devices. Um, but I do think it's worth having this conversation is, you know, are we kind of reaching a, a plateau or even a decline in interest in the DIY smart home for the time being, as we kind of had this first wave of products and do we, will we maybe need some, uh, reinvigoration of the market, maybe something like a home kit. I think a couple things are happening. First of all, talking about how things are declining in a particular segment in the middle of the summer is kind of red herring. I mean, as you approach summer, people are going to be. Uh, perhaps spending less on stuff like that and spending more instead on vacations and and the like. And we know there's been very little news, no big new product launches or announcements for the most part. So I, I question whether you know this is the right time to be having that question. But the other there that conversation. The other thing that I guess I'm curious about is one of the factors that they looked at in this study was conversations on social media and. What I, what I couldn't glean from this as I was l- looking through it is, is this specific to home automation and smart home, like those types of buzzwords, or does this also cover 
IoT because I swear I can't look at my sidebar of Twitter posts on my screen at any point in time without seeing IoT there at some point. IoT has become what cloud was, I think, four or five years ago, where it was the you know the dominant buzzword in tech. It's the things around which a lot of companies are refashioning their companies and their company structure, saying we're going to jump on this IoT wave and, and this will be the thing that carries us for the next de- decade. If you're building core technology like semiconductors, you know these are this is the thing you're you're presenting in your board meetings. So I agree with you. You can't get away with it. It's it's like big data also. That was like another huge potential yep. thing that was going to drive tons of businesses. But I agree with you. Some, there's some level of seasonality. And you have to question, you know, um, are, you know, what were the buzzwords that they were using? What were the right. what were the keywords that they were using to measure this? You know, I know talking to uh, some, some channels that certain categories continue to do well and are growing strong year over year. If you talk to companies like Amazon, uh, there's no doubt that they're seeing growth in the category. Um, but I do think that like, Hub-centric platforms have maybe had some trouble because I think we are still trying to convince the consumer, and maybe we're reaching reaching a little bit of saturation among early adopters. Do you need this whole home system? Do you need this whole home with a hub and and all these things connected? I still think that the average consumer needs to be convinced of that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And as you said, if people are buying point products and we start to see more of these ecosystems like HomeKit and works with Nest – where your point products are just designed to work with each other, that may be an easier sell. Well, this is a natural segue into the conversation of talking a little bit about smart home retail. And I'm going to remind you of a point you made last, uh, last week in the conversation, <laughs> in the, in the lost episode, it's the lost episode that no one will ever hear. It, it uh, is. But maybe, before we, before we get to that, I, I just, I kind of, I'm wondering like, because I, I want to make that point. I want to. I want to talk about that. But I want to ask you. You know, while we're speaking about retail, did you have a chance to read Julie's post about the smart homes uh, presentation that Sears is doing? Because I know that you've written about this too. I don't think I read Julie's latest piece on that. Tell me a little bit about it. So she has a really good review of what the experience is like in the Sears store and how they're incredibly friendly and incredibly helpful. And it's so well organized and laid out, but nobody there really is personally committed or engaged with these products. Like the, the people that they have in the Sears store. And just as a reminder to your listeners, Sears put a prototype smart home store together in one of their stores just the same way that Target did. And I think it's also in the San Francisco area, if I'm remembering this correctly. But theirs is more experiential. Theirs is more like you're walking through different homes or different rooms in a home. And they have a ton of different products. And inherently, a lot of them are not designed to work with each other. So, Julie talks about the confusion that this potentially creates, the fact that the people who are staffing this are wonderfully friendly and helpful, but they are not personally the kind of people that actually use these things. So they don't have personal experience, just what they've had in their extensive training. And despite all of Sears' best efforts, this probably is not the right way to approach this. And she kind of posits the question, what is the right way to approach this? Like what would... How would you address this? Because right now, 
the retail space is a mess. I mean, I go into my Best Buy and they have all these stands up where you can see plastic non-working replicas of the different products that they sell. And then a couple interactive demos, but the shelves are almost empty. It's like they stopped bothering to actually put stuff on the shelves there. And I know that Staples originally came out with a, a really powerful prototype uh, store model display that they worked on with Zonoff. And then when it hit stores, it was really watered down and not terribly exciting, a bunch of empty box uh, displays. And so I, I think the general issue is that nobody seems to be doing this right. And I think this is where you were trying to get get me to again. I, I was trying to figure out who could do this right. Like who has the infrastructure right. to pull this off? And this is a little bit of a weird uh, mix of uh, potential companies, but there have even been some rumors that this company might get into this area, and that's IKEA. I think IKEA is in the perfect position to create an experiential sales floor uh, presentation that could really help people understand the use cases and see how these different devices could work in a kitchen or in a bedroom or in a living room or what have you. And uh, I think that would be something interesting to watch. I agree. And I think it's more than rumors. I think that they actually have basically said that they are creating some form of smart home initiative. I know that they flew, I think it was maybe a Verge analyst or Verge writer out to show them uh, the proof of concept or, or kind of the progress they're making on it. Um, I think that they've also been talking not to veer too far off about what the future looks, the future kitchen looks like in, in 10 years and, and creating some proof of concepts and some futuristic concepts around that. But to your point, they really do have the experience nailed. I mean, if I, my, my wife was just there this week and based on our earlier conversation in the lost episode, um, <laughs> I told her to keep an eye out for, you know, do, do they have anything around smart home? Do they sell appliances? I haven't been, I haven't been Ikea for years, by the way. And I forgot if they sold appliances and they do. And I could just see them creating really great experiences around some of these connected appliances and how they may interoperate and what they look like in the context of a real room. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's really a great experience walking around the Ikea. You have to make the lap. I don't know if every Ikea is like this, but it's like you're walking a mile lap around oh, all yeah. these experiences. And there's no way to Absolutely. get out of it. So you're it's for, a maze. So you're forced to go through the experience. And so everyone walks through this. So if they had this great futuristic experience along the mile lap, uh, I think that would get a lot of people interested, and they'd be able to see everything within the context and, and get it. They'd maybe get the vision a little bit better. Yeah, I think that could be really cool. And they, you know, they tend to be a step ahead in terms of technology and trends as well. They just announced this past week, in fact, that by September, all lighting from IKEA will be LED based. Period. Nothing else. I didn't. That's, I, that's great. That's pretty cool. Getting back to your piece on Julie's, and I'll, I'll go and read it, and we'll put it in the, the show notes. I mean, you, you have to feel a little bit bad if you're a, a guy working at the Sears Experience Store, and Julie Jacobson walks up and starts asking, <laughs> asking you the tough questions about Zigbee and Z-Wave. I feel a little bit bad for that person, don't you? <laughs> well, I kind of do. I mean, I I uh, you know liken it to when I go into Best Buy, and it's pretty much assured that you go into Best Buy, and you're going to know most you're going to know more about most of the products you're looking at than the people who work there. That's a sad truth. It, it 
sounds like, at least from a training and preparation perspective, that Sears is doing the right thing. But, you know, it's not like walking into the Apple store, for example, where if you go to the Apple store, and this was one of my comments on her post, was that you go to an Apple store, the people that work there live and breathe Apple. So these are people that really love this stuff and are really into it. And that's, I think, what this technology needs from a staffing perspective. Yeah, they need the smart home geniuses at the retail level. And I'm surprised that at the one experiential proof of concept store, they couldn't get that out of the gate. I mean, you have to think this through to the end conclusion. And and if you're going to have this one store that this is showing the world what this could look like, you may have to have more than the the minimum wage guy working. I don't know what they're you know what the kind of training these folks went through, but you might want to bring in some serious ringers to be kind of the the guys on the floor, the the smart home geniuses. And it doesn't sound like they did that at least initially. Yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised by that. So, you know, you were talking earlier. I think that Lowe's has a new product coming out. That's another thing that Julie had written about they're going to have the same sort of challenge. They need to figure out how do they sell this in stores because their their sales experience right now is so mixed. Some stores have something that's attempting to be experiential. Others are just an area in some shelves. We'll see where it goes. I mean, someone's got to crack the nut on this. Um, I'm interested to see what the Apple store looks like when they get this thing fully fleshed out. Um, I, I, I just don't know. If anyone beyond Apple has it in their DNA to really do this right, I'm hoping that some of these guys do. And I'm encouraged by what Target and Sears are doing. Certainly, I think that's a great step in the right direction. Uh, but let's, they need to kind of work out some of the kinks, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, well, that's a wrap, I think, Richard. I really appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, this was fun again. <laughs> and I promise, no matter what I sound like, I will publish this podcast. Even if it sounds like I'm garbling through a, a tin can of string, this will not be another lost episode. All right. Well, that's good because uh, I, I had fun both times, but it's a shame <laughs> that people only get to listen to this one. Hey, before we go, can I pimp something? You certainly can. I was going to ask you where people can find you, but uh, oh, well, go, before go ahead we pimp. do that, I'm going to pimp something for you. You have a South by Southwest panel that I voted for, and I think people should go do that too. You want to tell people about that? Yeah. You know, I, I had a lot of fun at the last South by Southwest. I, I got to moderate within the official program uh, a panel on the future of the connected home. Um, I don't like to do the same panel two years in a row. I'd love to talk about more smart home, but I thought I'd do something a little bit different this time. So I'm doing one on the connected kitchen. It's just a really exciting area, so much so that I obviously have talked about my own. I've created my own event called the Smart Kitchen Summit, but I also thought we would take our act to Austin. And uh, so I have uh, myself as well as uh, uh, the CTO or uh, Matt from June, the, the CEO of June. Uh, I have uh, the CEO of Nomiku and also Chris from Chef Steps. It's going to be a great topic. Um, I think the future of the kitchen with all the technology coming in, it's just really exciting right now. So I'd love for you guys, if, you, if you're interested or just want to do me a favor, uh, vote. And by the way, are, are you going to go to South by Southwest this year? Of course. I, I already have my hotel reservations. I am so there. Oh, man. Already? That's like it's like next March, man. What are you doing? That was a great hotel. I had to make sure that I got in again. I uh, Airbnb'd it last time, a little bit out, but I was right on the bus line. But uh, yeah, it's it's crazy. Like you have to actually to get into the official South by Southwest housing, you have to basically do it now, don't you? Yeah, and to get 
anywhere nearby, you really have to do it within the first couple of days. So if you're interested in going to South by Southwest, definitely you should be registering now and getting your housing now. If you are uh, at all interested in the smart home stuff, there's so much smart home and IoT stuff going on nowadays. And I really enjoyed your panel last year. So I was eager to vote for your panel and the panel picker this year. Awesome. Thanks, man. Now, why don't you pimp your own stuff? All right. So just real quickly, you talk about my stuff all the time. I'm a little bit embarrassed by how much you talk about me and my stuff. But uh, Home On is the name of my show. We focus primarily on home control and automation for the consumer and hobbyist. And uh, we have a lot of great guests, a, a format very similar to yours, where we have guests on and talk with them all the time. We cover the news. And in an upcoming episode, I'm going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to be talking about uh, a project and what's going on in the smart home space in uh, in a different country than our own, which I don't often get a whole lot of visibility into. How exciting. And when will be that'll be published in the next week or two? That'll be published in about two weeks. Yeah, we have an every other week schedule for Home One. So check that out at the digitalmediazone.com or just search for Home Automation in iTunes. Awesome. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Hey, well, I'm really glad I did that a second time with Richard. I hope you enjoyed that. I thought it was a good conversation to talk about a lot of the things we're thinking about on a fairly regular basis. Once again, if you are or you know someone who's creating products at the intersection of technology and food in any respect, uh, tell them about our startup cook-off at the Smart Kitchen Summit. Just send them to smartkitchensummit.com. I'd appreciate it. As always, if you haven't subscribed to the Smart Home Show, you know where to go. Just go to technology.fm or just look for the Smart Home Show in iTunes or your regular podcast spaces. All right, folks, that's it. I'll talk to you soon.